Would you please turn with me to Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This This is is the the word word of of the Lord. Lord. Thank you, Waterman, father and daughter. That was great. It says in... 1 Samuel chapter 3, now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that The word of the Lord is not rare in our day or in our country. We thank you that we have it in our hands. We thank you that we have the spirit to speak to us. And our prayer as we begin this message is simply the words of Samuel. You are our Lord. We are your servants. We ask you to speak now in the power of your spirit through your most holy word. And we're listening to do what you tell us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wasn't that great to see all those little kids up here just a minute ago? Don does a fantastic job with them. But let me ask you this question. What is the one thing that you do not need to teach a little baby? Now, there's a lot they need to learn, but there's one thing that you never have to teach them. And I think that may be best summarized in this song by Randy Bachman from a different era. Listen to these lyrics. Every night is a different game. We gotta work for our fortune and fame. Success is a ladder. Take a step at a time. And the people will remember your name. Yes, I found out all the tricks of the trade. And that there's only one way you're gonna get things done. I found out. Looking out for number one And that's me, I'm looking out for 
bygone era, but a message for today. Now, what we're not talking about when we're talking about looking out for number one is this. Okay, it's still trying to get awake this morning. I know it's a little bit early still. Um, You're coming along. How about this one? We're also not speaking about this. Now... (laughs) Some of you have been asking for a stubby story. He's our dog. Uh, You'll get one a little bit later on, but this was just a little prep for that. Uh, But as I thought about the verse of that song, I thought, that is really fantastic biblical theology. And I want you to take a look at this verse and, and examine it with me. This is exactly what Jesus teaches. Except for one little phrase. Look at that carefully. All we have to do is change one phrase in there, and we have a wonderful biblical explanation of how we're supposed to live our lives. Can you find it? Still thinking, scratching your heads. Well, all we need to do is change that little phrase there, and that's me. We're going to learn from our text today that the Bible wants us to look out for number one, but we need to make sure that we have the right number one. Now, if you haven't already, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 30. And here we come to another change of pace in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. He has given some hard-hitting teaching on humility. Earlier in this chapter, he dove deep into the theology of the Incarnation. And then he exhorted the Philippians to grow, to advance in their Christian faith. And now he completely changes the flow of the story and begins to talk about something very ordinary, travel plans. Our passage divides into two very neat sections. Timothy's travel plans, verses 19 to 24, and Epaphroditus' travel plans in verses 25 to 30. And if you're someone who needs to know where the sermon is headed, like I am, we're going to take one pass through the passage and kind of get the storyline in place so we know what's going on. And then we're going to come back through the passage again and we're going to learn a little bit more of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what that actually looks like in practice. So first, the flow of the story. Paul, as you will recall, is in prison in Rome, or at least in house arrest. He's writing this letter to a church that God established through his ministry in the Macedonian city of Philippi some 12 years earlier. And in verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Timothy was with Paul in Rome. Paul's getting ready to send him to Philippi. And then how would Paul be cheered by news of the Philippians? Well, I think the assumption is Paul would expect Timothy to come back from Philippi with a report on how the church there is doing. I think that's what's going on in verse 19. Now, to understand this and really the whole passage, we need to know how Timothy and Epaphroditus would have made that trip. Here is a map of the area, and you probably know that Paul would not have gotten onto cheaptickets.com and booked a plane ticket. You've got that. Uh, What it would have involved is about a 400-mile journey from Rome on the Appian Way to the Adriatic Sea, then about a 100-mile journey across the sea, and another 400 miles over to Philippi. 
And you do know that this was before cars, right? So how do you travel? Well, you pretty much just have to walk. Now, there was a pretty good road called the Appian Way that Rome had built. And here's a couple pictures of what it looks like. This was the superhighway in the whole world at that point in time. Another shot of what that looks like. It's kind of like walking from Indianapolis up to Traverse City in Michigan and getting on a boat going across Lake Michigan to Wisconsin and then coming down, walking through Milwaukee and Chicago and back to Indianapolis. That's about how long this journey was. And you're probably thinking, my goodness, that would take forever. Well, actually, not really. Because you can walk about 25 miles in a day. And so you could make it from here to Traverse City in a couple of weeks. A couple of days to get across Lake Michigan. A couple of weeks. Now, that's not us, maybe, but them. A couple of weeks to get back down from Menominee, Wisconsin, back down to Indianapolis. So five, six weeks tops, you've got this journey covered. And Paul's about ready to send Timothy on a round-trip, six-week, by-foot journey. Now, you do know also that there were no McDonald's or Holiday Inns every 20 miles along the way. Uh, and there were no state troopers to keep an eye on things. Uh, there were a few inns here and there, once in a while a Roman garrison, but this was a grueling, dangerous journey to undertake. When does Paul hope to send Timothy? Look at verse 23. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. His case is still pending before Caesar in Rome, and he wants to wait till that case has been determined, and then... We think that if he had been set free, he's probably planning to go with Timothy to Philippi. But if he has to stay in imprisonment, then he's going to send Timothy on by himself. Notice he says, in the Lord, both in verse 24 and back in verse 19. He's acknowledging that all of his plans are dependent on God's sovereignty. He makes plans for travel, but he knows that God is the one that is going to ultimately determine what happens. Now, how about the other guy, the guy with the funny name, Epaphroditus? I I can't imagine they actually called him that. Uh, Maybe Pappy or Frodo or who knows what his nickname was. But he was from Philippi, and, and now he was with Paul in Rome. Why? The Philippians had sent Epaphroditus, we'll find out in chapter 4, with some money to help take care of Paul's needs. Because in the Roman prison system, they didn't provide for your food, clothing, or medical care. Your friends and family had to do that for you. So the Philippians sent money by the hands of Epaphroditus. He continued to stay on in Rome to care for Paul's needs. He was his right-hand man. And yet we find out that he's homesick, verse 26, for he has been longing for you all. The end of verse 30 says that he's completing what was lacking in your service to me. He is a representative of the Philippian church who can't be there in person, caring for the needs of Paul, but he misses mom and pop and his friends and the church back in Philippi. And so Paul decides to practice what he's been preaching, to think of the Philippians' interests more than his own, to consider Epaphroditus' needs more important than his own. And so he makes plans to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi so that he can chill, so that they can relax about how he's doing, and then Paul's own anxiety would be lessened. Now, Paul is concerned that the Philippian church might wonder what he's doing back so soon, because they knew that Paul didn't like quitters. 
And so that's one reason that Paul wrote this letter, to tell them, and he sent it by the hands of Epaphroditus probably, to tell them, no, I'm sending him back to you, it's all right. Receive him with joy in the Lord when he gets back. So that's what's going on in this passage. And we learn in this text how to be a good servant. It's a different kind of passage. It's more narrative than teaching. It's more descriptive than prescriptive. In fact, we don't run into a command until way down in verse 29. But the other unusual thing about this passage is that normally these kinds of explanations and and descriptions come at the very end of Paul's letters. But here he puts it right smack dab in the middle of Philippians, and I think he did that deliberately. Why do I think that? Think about the flow of the text. Paul has been describing for them from chapter 1, verse 27, what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. And he says in chapter 2 that that involves thinking of other people as more important than yourself, verse 3. It involves considering their interests before your own, verse 4. It involves understanding that the only way we can do that is to have the mind of Christ replace our minds, verse 5. And then he describes what the mind of Christ was like. That Christ emptied himself from his glory. He came down to serve and he served to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Paul goes on to say, if the mind of Christ is yours, you will grow up in your salvation. You will learn to trust me and stop complaining. And you will also stop arguing with each other because you'll be putting their interests ahead of yours. And then he says in verse 17, I've actually done that. He says in verse 17, I have poured out my life like a drink offering upon the sacrifice of your faith. What Paul is saying is, I've taken everything that I am and have, and I have offered it up to God. I have poured it out to its dregs so that you might grow in your faith, Philippian church. And as the Philippians read that, they might have been thinking, great. This is something that Jesus did. It's something that the great apostle Paul did. But I don't know if it's something that I can do. That's like asking me to dunk the ball like LeBron or to dribble the ball like Lionel Messi. That's a game for superstars. It's not something that I can do, and that's exactly why he puts this in the middle of the book of Philippians. What he's reminding them is, do you remember timid Timothy? Do you remember homesick Epaphroditus? Those guys could do it, and if they could do it, you can too. This is not just a game for superstars. It's a game for anybody because anybody who believes can have the mind of Christ and they can be changed forever. They are flesh and blood examples of the selfless conduct to which Paul is calling the Philippian church. Their backgrounds could not have been more dissimilar and yet each one is coming to resemble their Savior. We learn in this text that a good servant has three qualities. Three qualities. The first quality of a good servant is that a good servant cares. And the question for us is, do I? Look at verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Wow, what a statement. This says a lot about Timothy, but it also says a lot about the church in Rome. Paul's saying, I've got a need here, something that that needs to be done for the kingdom, and there is not a single person in the entire church of Rome that I can ask to do this other than Timothy. 
Why? Well, he says, they all, verse 21, seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What an indictment on the church in Rome. And Paul actually mentions about 26 of these people in the last chapter of the book of Romans. So we know who they were. And he says not one of them was thinking about Christ's interests. They were all thinking of their own interests. It wasn't that they didn't believe the gospel. It wasn't that they didn't have good intentions. It was that when push came to shove, their own agendas always won out. And when Paul asked for a little help here, they would say, sorry, I'm tied up. I got some stuff going on. I I can't be there to help you. Only Timothy had emptied himself of his own interests so that he could serve the interests of the gospel and of other people. And you see, the problem is that we only have time and energy for a limited number of interests. We can't care about everything, can we? You know that. And and so if we spend our time and energy on our own interests, we have very little, if any, left over to give to other people. Calvin said about the church in Rome, they were so warm in pursuing their own interests that they were cold in the work of the Lord. And I wonder if that describes some of us perhaps this morning. Or as Warren Wiersbe says, we all live in either 121, where I live for Christ, or in 221, where I live for myself. Leslie Newbegin, the theologian, analyzed it this way. He said, I suddenly saw that someone could use all the language of evangelical Christianity, and yet the center was fundamentally the self, my need for salvation. Evangelical Christianity can easily slip It can become centered in me and my needs and not in the glory of God. What's he saying? We get the number one wrong. And that's our problem. Timothy was different. Whose interests was he pursuing? Verse 21, the interests of Jesus Christ. And what were those interests? People. That's pretty much all Jesus cares about. He cared about the church in Philippi. And Timothy cared as well. Notice it says that he is genuinely concerned, verse 20, for your welfare. This was not something put on. It was not something he was doing for a show. It was not something he was doing in order to get something else. But he genuinely from his heart cared for the Philippian church. It says that he was concerned for their welfare, verse 20. That word is the same word that Paul uses in chapter 4, verse 6. And if you're a student of the book of Philippians, you'll know what that verse is. That, that verse says, don't have any concerns. Don't be anxious about anything. And here he says, Timothy is concerned about something. He's anxious about something. Same idea. And so how do we put that together? Because here he's commended for it. In chapter 4, Paul says, don't do it. Well, the answer is actually very simple as I thought about it. And here's the answer to that. The Bible forbids us to be concerned about our own affairs, to be worried about them. But the Bible commands us to be worried and concerned and interested in the affairs of other people. Yes, we have problems, but what we need to do is cast those on God because He cares for us. And then we're free to do what the Bible commands, to think about the interests of others. And that's exactly what Timothy had learned to do. The same angst that we have for our own problems 
we're supposed to have for other people's problems and not our own. This is a learning process. Timothy had learned over the years how to genuinely look out for number one. If you need a picture of that, he was Paul's radar O'Reilly. He was the guy that was ready to do whatever it took with no ego at all for whatever the team needed to happen. There's a story of a soldier that was coming home from foreign duty and a a new driver was dispatched to the train station to pick him up. And the driver said, how am I going to recognize this soldier? And the soldier's mother told him, oh, he'll be the one who is helping other people. He thought, great, that's not going to help me very much. But he got to the station and sure enough, everybody was piling off the train, everybody busy going their own direction, carrying their own bags. And then he saw one man who was helping an old lady get off the train. He went up to that one man and he said, Sir, are you the soldier I came to pick up? He said, Yes, I am. Like that soldier, Timothy was known for thinking first about the interests of Jesus Christ and of others and not the interests of himself. How about Epaphroditus? Our text says that he had been sick. He almost died. And now he's sick with worry. Look down in verse 26. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed. The word there is the same word that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's one of the most powerful Greek words. It it literally means not at home. He was crazy. He, He had lost touch with the ability to sort of cope because of this great burden that was on him. And what was he distressed about? Watch in verse 26. He was distressed because you heard... That he was ill. Did you catch that? He's not distressed at his circumstances. He's distressed that somehow the Philippian church found out that he was sick. And he probably got sick perhaps on the way over from Philippi. And maybe a traveler going back had told them that he was sick. And they got word that he had almost died. And they were so concerned about Epaphroditus. And now Epaphroditus in Rome is distressed deeply in his soul because they're worried about him. Now what do we do when we have problems? We insulate ourselves we withdraw we pull away but Epaphroditus cared for others and let their distress become his he was a lot like stubby I know we have some kids in the service I've been having a number of requests for another stubby story those of you that are new to the church stubby's our dog he's a a mix part Australian shepherd part chow part lab And uh, the the shepherd part about him is a beautiful thing to see. Subby, in most hours of the day, is only concerned about one thing, and that is where Marty and I are in the house. In fact, it's amazing. You could get a tape measure almost any time of the day, and you'd find that he's equidistant between anybody in the house. If Marty's upstairs and I'm downstairs, he'll be on either the top or the bottom stair. If she's in the living room, I'm in the dining room, he'll be right in between. Why? Because his mind has taught him to always worry about other people, to care for us. Now, there's two times in the day when he doesn't care about us, and and that's breakfast and supper. But once we get that taken care of, the rest of the time, Stubby is interested in our welfare. Well, last week I was sitting in the family room, reading or watching TV, and Marty was in the garage, and I heard this loud, Ouch! So like any good husband, I yelled, What's the matter? (laughs) Stubby didn't just yell. Do you know what Stubby did? He ran immediately to the door to find out what had happened to Marty. 
Marty can barely get words out. She says, I hit my head on the shelf in here. And so finally I get up off my easy chair and I kick Stubby out of the way so I can get to her because he's just right there ready to help. And I thought, my goodness, here, my dog has put me to shame. (laughs) Because he's got a mindset that he's always concerned about the interests of other people and not his own issues. And that is so hard for us, is it not? That's why we need, my friends, the mind of Christ in us. And he will give it to us. Bonhoeffer said we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with needs. If we pass them by, listen to this, we pass by the visible sign of the cross raised in our path to show us that not our way but God's way must be done. It is part of the discipline of humility that we must not spare our hand when it can perform a service and that we do not assume that our schedule is our own to manage but allow it to be arranged by God. And that starts, my friend, by genuinely caring for the needs of others. Do you? Well, secondly, we see in this passage that a good servant doesn't quit. And the question for us is, will I? Look at verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth, a word that means tested and tried and proven to be reliable. I think Paul is looking backwards now to John Mark from Acts chapter 15. John Mark went with Paul on his first missionary journey. But it says in verse 28 of Acts 15 that John Mark withdrew from the team and did not go with them to the work. And so Paul said, no, no, he's not coming any longer with us. He's a quitter. Now, there may be legitimate reasons to quit. It's just that there aren't very many of them. And the reason that John Mark quit was apparently not an acceptable reason in Paul's mind. So he ditched him at the very next stop. He picked up Timothy, and for the next 10 or 12 years, Timothy worked side by side with Paul. And after those 10 or 12 years, Paul can now say, after he had given Timothy many different assignments to do, this man is a proven commodity. You can depend on him. Give him a job. It's going to get done. He does not quit. How about Epaphroditus? Well, look at the five descriptions of him in verse 25. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, He was a believer in Jesus, a friend of Paul's, fellow worker. The picture is of two oxen yoked together in a task. Epaphroditus had been yoked with Paul to get the job of preaching the gospel of Christ where he had never been named among all the nations, and he had done it well. Fellow soldier. I think Paul is probably looking at the two imperial guards that were literally chained to him in prison. And thinking about them, how they fight in battle, arm in arm, their shields locked together as they advance against the enemy. Soldiers that submit to their general. Soldiers that are willing to endure hardship because they're fighting a battle. And Epaphroditus has done that and he has not quit. Your messenger, literally their apostle, sent on a mission. And finally, minister to my need. There's a sacred connotation to the word that Paul used there, that his physical service to Paul was actually a a sacrifice that was pleasing in God's sight to him. And yet Epaphroditus was a sick man. He had been sick in his body. He was sick with worry. And now he was homesick. And notice that Paul didn't blame him for that or tell him to knock it off. It's not wrong to have human feelings 
In fact, that's very normal and God expects us to have those. It was fine for him to be homesick, but what would not have been fine? Martin Lloyd-Jones helped me with this. He said, you are not a poorer Christian if you get homesick on the mission field. It is part of being human. So you missionaries listening to this, it's fine to be homesick. That's what it means to be human. Christians do not lose all natural feeling. So then what are we supposed to do? Well, this is then what he said. We are to mortify not our nature, but the perverse things in us. Don't you love that British directness? What is the perverse thing in us? Well, it is, for example, the inclination not to obey if we might get hurt. See, we're going to feel pain. But we need to be those that don't quit, that persevere, that continue to do it, that put to death those desires for comfort and ease so that the job can be accomplished. And that's exactly what Epaphroditus did. What would a typical human reaction be after going through everything that he went through? It would be to tap out. You say, I'm done. I've done my time. No one else is involved here. Let someone else pick up the baton from me. And that's not what he said. He was willing and ready now to go back at Paul's orders all that way back to Philippi. He didn't quit. He was a good servant. You may be burned out in the service that you're offering to the Lord. Be encouraged that a good servant who has the mind of Christ will persevere to the end. And then finally, a good servant is willing to pay the cost. And the question is, am I? Where do we see that in the passage? There's a little word in verse 22 we need to look at. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. It's not clear so much from the English translation, but that word he has served is from the Greek root doulos, which means a slave. All right? Now, we don't understand very well in today's America what being a slave really means. But our African-American friends know exactly what that word meant in the centuries before ours. Do you know what being a slave means? It means that you literally do not belong to yourself. You have no control over what happens to you. You have a master. Whatever the master tells you to do, you must do. And as abhorrent as that kind of structure is for human relationships, it's actually, according to Paul, a perfect analogy for our heavenly relationship. And he uses it many times. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. You see, this is true of us and God, first of all, because God's our creator. He made us, and so it's logical that he owns us. But second, and in even a deeper way, He is the master of those who have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. You notice the text says, He, was a, he has served with me in the gospel. It was the gospel that transformed Timothy and made him a willing slave, not an unwilling slave. Because Timothy understood all that Jesus had done for him. That he had left the glories and comfort and splendor of heaven to come down to this dirty, smelly earth and to live in a, a, a limited, confined human body and then to, to let that body be beaten and abused and spit upon and then ultimately nailed to a cross. And then the gospel goes on to, shape, to say that Jesus was raised again on the third day for our justification so that anybody who believes in Him might receive forgiveness of sins and have their relationship with God restored again. And when you understand how much Jesus has done for you, 
you'll make yourself a willing slave to him. Now, it's true that we are his children, and that's a beautiful metaphor as well of our relationship to God. But it's not the only one in the Bible. Timothy had made himself a slave because of and on account of the gospel. He was willing to do whatever it took and to pay whatever cost there was. Now, we see in Epaphroditus another example of this, one that we as regular human beings might be able to get a better grasp on. Because as one commentator said, Epaphroditus was probably a one-talent Christian. He didn't have a lot of leadership ability. He wasn't dynamic. He wasn't an upfront person. In fact, we never see him again in, in all of Scripture outside of the end of the book of Philippians. But he had one talent, and he didn't bury it. He gave it for God's service. What happened? Well, look at verse 30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And here Paul, in the midst of a deadly serious point, has a little fun with a play on words. Because Aphroditus was the goddess of gamblers. And gamblers, as they were rolling the dice, would literally call out, Epaphroditus! Epaphroditus! Help us! Make the dice turn out in our favor so that we'll win this bet. And what's Paul saying now about Epaphroditus? He's saying he has done the same thing. He has risked, he has gambled his life for the work of Christ. As Mole said, on account of Christ's work, he was at death's very door, playing, as it were, the gambler with his life. And we think, how risky, how foolish, how not like me. How could he have done that? Well, I think he understood the biblical principle that Jim Elliot made famous in the mid-50s, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. His life to him was as nothing because the reward was still ahead. Do you suppose when the Philippian church asked Epaphroditus to take this money, to Rome, his first question was, is it safe? No. Of course it's not safe. But that's not the question. Is it safe is not a question that a slave asks. Now, it is a question that a general asks because a general who's deploying his troops does not want to needlessly expose his soldiers to damage. But it is not a question that a servant or a slave or a soldier asks. If the commander says, do it, the soldier says, done. I'm there. I don't even ask about the risk. And that's the kind of man Epaphroditus was. Matthew Henry worded it like this. He said, those who truly love Christ and are hearty. I love that word again. They're hearty in the interests of his kingdom, will think it very well worth their while to hazard their health and life to do him service. So are our missionaries safe where we send them out? Maybe not. Maybe safer than here in Indianapolis. But they are taking a risk. And I know that some of you have thought about going on a vision trip. And the second or third reason you give for not going is because you don't think it's safe there. That is not a good reason not to go. You might have an upset stomach. You're not going to go. 
That's not a very good reason to give. It's not being a very good servant. Now, I'm not saying you all have to go on a vision trip. We've got two going to, one to India and one to Kenya this fall. And there's room for a few more folks on that trip. And I would hate for someone here to say, you know, God wants me to be involved in that ministry, but I'm too afraid. I'm not going to risk my life or I'm not going to risk being sick. If, if that is your reaction, then you haven't understood what it means to be a servant. You don't have the mind of Christ. He sets up Epaphroditus as an example for us all that we need to risk those things that we're normally not willing to risk for the sake of the work of Christ, verse 30. And then notice what he tells the Philippian church to do with people like that, verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Christ says to honor those who sacrifice for the work of Christ. And I know that many of you are serving in ways around our city and in your community and you're sacrificing. You should be honored as well. But there's a special sense, I, I think, in which our missionaries are sacrificing for the work of Christ. And I thought it would be good if we honored them. And I think we might have... Do we have any missionaries in our service today? Are Grant and Deb Olson here? Okay, I guess not. I thought we were going to have some missionaries. We... There you go. Thank you. Tom and Robin, would you guys stand? Evan, Kendall, Kristen. These guys are back from Thailand for a few weeks, and they've been serving God faithfully there. And I think we just ought to apply the verse and honor people like this for their service. Thank you, guys. They've just come through a coup in Thailand. God kept them safe, and they're back for a few weeks of rest and getting kids settled here in the States. But you know, one of the beautiful things about missions is it's not just folks that we send out that get the job done. There are nationals in other countries that are advancing the gospel at great risk to themselves. And we have another guest with us today that we want to hear a little bit from. Ivan Rusin is what we would call the president of the Ukrainian Evangelical Theological Seminary in Kiev, Ukraine. You may know a little bit of what's been going on in Ukraine in the last few months. And so we wanted to honor him and to hear a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine and the ministry of UETS. Brother, so good to have you here with us today. Um, could you tell us a little bit, just fill us in on the background, what's going on in Ukraine uh, the last few months and especially the last just week or two? Thank you very much for this wonderful opportunity for me to worship God together with you. I am very sad to inform you that right now my country, Ukraine, goes through the valley of very deep political and military unrest. And these uh, events changing my country dramatically. First, it's a revolution of dignity when millions of Ukrainians, they stand up against corruption. And after three months of peaceful protest, Former president, corrupted president, ran away, and now we have new elected president. Second is more tragic. As you know, in the eastern part of Ukraine, there is a real war. Many people are dead, and thousands are refugees. So, and yesterday I got very sad information from Ukraine. One of our alumni, Sergei Skorobogach, was killed by a terrorist bomb. He was our alumni, and he was pastoring a church in Mariupol. And when he was a student, he was sponsored by College Park Church. So it is very difficult times right now in Ukraine. Well, we certainly want to remember to pray for Sergei's family. And this is exactly chapter 2, risking their lives for the gospel. Incredible. 
Uh, tell us a little bit, Ivan, about how youth has been able to minister during this time of upheaval in Ukraine. During the revolution, we had amazing opportunity to touch our nation's heart. For example, our counseling department provides counseling for wounded people right down in the center of our capital city. Our music department had opportunity to sing songs and worship songs from the stage to thousands of Ukrainians. Our teachers and students, they had opportunity to preach from the stage, and we had opportunity to pray for people and with people. And can you imagine when 100,000 of Ukrainians are praying Lord's Prayer with tears on their eyes, and they ask, God, let your will be done, and they ask, let your kingdom come. So we had wonderful opportunity to touch our nation's heart. And right now our campus serves as a refugee camp because there are many refugees and we provide shelter for them. So even this situation is very difficult. We have opportunities to serve our nation. Amen. I just think we need to stop for a minute and just pray for Sergei and for your ministry. Would you just join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your church in Ukraine. Thank you for brave men like Sergei who pastored a church in the war zone. Now, yesterday he went to be with Jesus. Would you comfort his family and the whole youth community? I know that from his position with Jesus now, he would want nothing more than that the gospel be proclaimed through his death. So would you open many opportunities now for your people to proclaim the hope that we have in Christ in this time of great sorrow and loss. And Lord, help UETS to continue to advance the gospel as they train men and women for the ministry of the gospel in a very hard place. And would you bless that country with peace once again. Thank you for our brother, for his ministry. We commit him into your hand in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's honor Yvonne and men like him. Thank you so much. Yvonne and the Suttons will be in the foyer after the service if you'd like to hear more about what's going on in Ukraine. But now it's time to look at ourselves. It's one thing to talk about our missionaries or our national partners, but what about you? Who is the number one that you're looking out for? Maybe you're saying something like this, if, if truth be told, I'm actually not that interested in becoming a servant. Life is either hard enough or nice enough as it is, and I don't want to get those waters ruffled. You might say, I'm going through life like I drive down the freeway. I, I'm just heading my car down the road, and I'm trying to get to a destination, and I'll, I'll try not to hit anybody, and I don't want anybody to hit me, but I'm not stopping to help anybody because I've got to get to where I'm going. And if, if that's you today, let me tell you, I understand that. That is so human. That's like all these babies up here. That's actually very baby-like to look out for number one. But God wants us to grow up. He wants us to go past that. He wants us to work out our salvation by having the mind of Christ take control of us. That's your old self speaking. And if you're in Christ, you have a new self you have this very Jesus that we've heard about in Philippians living inside of you. And He can change you and make you new. 
You see, if there's a disconnect between our theology and our lives, we have the wrong theology. And if the Jesus that you claim to believe in is not a Jesus who is transforming you so that you consider others' interests more important than your own, then he is not the Jesus that I know of from the Bible. The beauty is that we can be changed by him, just like Timothy and Epaphroditus were. And he's promised that if you lose your life for his sake in the gospel, you will find it. You will never regret a single thing you give up because he's going to give it all back in spades to you. Who is number one? Of course, it's Jesus and his interests. Who's next? Others. And who's third? You. You probably heard that in Sunday school. Jesus, others, you spells joy. And that's the message of Philippians. Some of you are doing an amazing job of this, by the way. Just this week I met with the team going to the Caspian. And God has done amazing things through you people in providing housing and finances and prayer support and encouragement for them. Thank you for doing that. Friday I heard a story I couldn't believe. We have another missionary that needs a vehicle for a few months and somebody in our church felt led to let them borrow their vehicle. Three children, two cars, a van and a regular car. They said, why don't you use our van for the next few months? We'll get the three kids in the car. And when the missionary went to pick up the car, do you know what that individual said? He said, God told me to give you this car. You don't even have to give it back. And I thought, that person has understood the book of Philippians. He has the mind of Christ. He's living not for himself, but for others. There are many ways that you can be involved and serve. There's VBS that still needs a lot of workers for next month. And if you want to risk your life for the gospel, what a great place to do it. Sign up out here in the foyer afterwards. Take a vision trip. Go outside of your comfort zone. Serve with safe families or with the Brookside Initiative somehow. Uh, here's another way that you can do that. We have a prayer guide that's available for you on your way out. There's two uh, kiosks with these prayer guides. Do you know that Ramadan, the Muslim month of fasting, is coming up the end of this month? Here's a very simple guide. One per family, one for the kids in your family as well. But take 30 days to think about somebody else besides yourself and pray for the Muslim world using this prayer guide. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. In May of 1939, Dietrich Bonhoeffer came to the United States to give some lectures to meet with the German exiles here in this country. And shortly after that, World War II broke out in Europe. He was encouraged not to go back to Germany but to stay in the states where he would be safe. Bonhoeffer had a decision to make. Do I stay where it's comfortable, where nothing much is going to happen to me? Or do I go back and join my church in Germany and speak out against the evils of the Nazi regime, come what may? Bonhoeffer knew who his number one was. It was Jesus Christ. And he knew what decision he had to make. He went back to Germany was thrown in prison and gave his life for the gospel. But he would do it over again in a flash. And my question for us this morning is, you and I have a decision to make as well.
Who is your number one? Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you didn't consider yourself number one, even though you are. But you came to this earth and emptied yourself and made yourself a slave for us. That just changes us. It makes us want to be your slave. And Father, I pray that we would make you number one and then make others number two in our lives. That we would seek the interests of Jesus Christ more than those of ourselves. You alone can do that. In fact, you've promised to, and our prayer as we close is simply this. Would you work in us both to will and then to act on that conviction? We ask that, that you might be glorified in our lives and in our church community. In the name of our Savior, your servant, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. There will be some folks at the front if you'd like to talk about any of these things or hear more about the gospel. Now, go and look out for number one this week.